Amen. We find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. So if you have your bulletin, it's printed for you. If not, if you're watching online, I encourage you to grab a Bible and turn to Isaiah. It's after uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. But if you hit Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you've gone just a little bit too far. We're continuing this morning in our Advent series on how Jesus brings peace. Last week we saw how Jesus, our great high priest, blesses us, his people, with peace. And this morning we're going to see how Jesus, as a king, brings peace to his people. And to do that, we're looking at a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Now when we read it, you'll notice it's in the past tense, because Isaiah is proclaiming this vision that is so certain he can refer to it in the past tense. You young worshipers that are with us this morning, I have a question for you. As we hear this passage, how long will Jesus be king? What does the Bible say? How long will Jesus be king? Hear now the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the living and active word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words of hope in darkness. O Lord, help us to see Jesus, the true King, the Prince of Peace, more clearly this morning. Amen. You may be seated. The great question which in all ages has disturbed mankind and brought on them the greatest part of those mischiefs which have ruined cities, depopulated countries, and disordered the peace of the world has been not whether there be power in the world, nor whence it came, but who should have it. John Locke, 1689. Power in the wrong hands, as we well know, is devastating. According to Locke, it does four things. It disturbs mankind, ruins cities, depopulates countries, and disorders the peace of the world. And to think he wrote this before the American and French Revolution, before the full horrors of colonization and the African slave trade were known, and before World War I and World War II, before the nuclear age. All these things are even more true for us today. When it comes to power, we, like Locke, find ourselves disillusioned. Who can wield it? Who can have power well? We ourselves know that we can't, but who can? 
We're disillusioned with others. We're disillusioned with ourselves. And we want, we have a desire, at leads to a desire for a faithful leader. This, delusion, this disillusionment leads to desire. And the more we desire it, the less we see it. And the more disillusioned we become until we spiral down into despair. These feelings are not new, as evidenced by Locke's quote in 1689, but even long before John Locke, people felt this way. Isaiah's first readers in particular would feel this quite acutely. He was writing this prophecy around 730 B.C. It was 200 years after the nation of Israel had split into a northern and southern kingdom because of the kings. And the kings had failed. They had failed to honor the Lord. The northern kingdom had allied itself with Syria and was oppressing the southern kingdom, looking to try to take back territory. And in the midst of all this pressure, the king of the southern kingdom faithlessly allies himself with the Assyrian Empire to try to have some power, to try to have somebody to have his back, and they basically just end up as a vassal state, submitting to someone else. Also add to all this, they've had multiple prophecies of their impending exile. So they get this cycle. They're disillusioned with the leaders they see, yet they desire somebody to faithfully lead, and it leads them into despair. But into their despair, into their desire, into their disillusionment, and ours today comes this prophecy of a king. And so we come to our big question this morning. How will this king bring peace? How will this king bring peace? Well, first, this king brings light in the darkness. This theme of light and darkness is not new in biblical theology at this point. We've seen it before. It's not new to the Israelites reading this prophecy. You see, they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and God brought them out of that darkness. And when he brought them out, in the night he appeared as a pillar of fire. He lit their way. He also gave them the law after he brought them out of Egypt. He gave them his word, which in Psalm 119 it calls a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. In this law, he actually gave provision for a king. He gave provision for a leader in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And basically it says this, the Lord himself will choose a king and it will be an Israelite. But the king will not rule for his own gain. He won't rule to try to gain wives or money, but rather he's there to obey God's law. You see, the king in Israel was meant to be the model Israelite. And as the king goes, so go the people. So the nation of Israel enters the promised land, but they don't follow God. They're not faithful. They rebel against him. And so in the book of Judges, we have this cycle where the Lord raises up a judge to help deliver his people. Then after the deliverance, they fall back into sin. They fall back into rebellion. And there's a refrain throughout the book that says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I'm sure that's not, that's not only true in the time of Judges, but true all across time. And space. There's no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, back in Isaiah 9, the people are in darkness. Their kings have failed. In just over 10 years, the Assyrian Empire is going to completely wipe out and exile the northern kingdom. And on the near horizon is the Babylonian Empire, which will wipe out and exile the southern kingdom. But in this prophecy, we see hope, we see light in darkness. In verse 1, this prophecy says that gloom will be dispelled, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. See, those two northern tribes, where the conquests start, where Assyria begins to take over, even there, eventually, light will shine in darkness. Even where the darkness seems the deepest, light will shine. And in verse 2, we see this darkness is deep. Verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This word here for deep darkness is the same word that in Psalm 23 is translated the shadow of death. It seems that there's no way out of this deep darkness, but the king brings light in the darkness. And this is the first part of how he brings peace. In order to have peace, your way needs to be illuminated. You need to be able to see. And so the king brings light in the darkness. I've had the opportunity before to explore Mammoth Cave National Park on a guided tour. And as I wove, as they walked us down the underground tunnels, eventually they take us into this big cavern and they say, everybody, please put your cell phones away. We're going to turn off all the lights. And so they do that. And as soon as the lights go off, you can see nothing. Absolutely nothing. You can't see the hand in front of your face. You can't see the person next to you. You can see nothing. And as they did that, I thought to myself, if they leave us, I'm a goner. If they leave us, I cannot find my way out. I cannot see anything. This is the kind of darkness that Israel and so often we find ourselves in. We can't light our own way. We need the king. But does the king just bring light? Does he just show us what's up? Does he just show us all the evil surrounding us and all of our enemies and then kind of leave us? No. Second, the king brings joyful liberation from oppression. Again, this idea of joyful liberation from oppression isn't new to the people of Israel. They've seen God do it before. In Egypt, he brought them out, as we've said. And when they get into the promised land, God fights their battles for them and delivers them. And actually, our passage this morning refers to one of those in verse 4, the day of Midian, which is found in Judges chapter 7. You see, in Judges chapter 7, Israel has been unfaithful. They've rebelled against God and they've gone after other gods. And so they become oppressed by the Midianite people. And so God raises up Gideon as a judge. Well, Gideon gathers 32,000 men to go fight against the Midianites, and God says, that's too many. And he whittles down their force to 300. And God himself says, lest they say, my own hand has saved me. He's clearly trying to demonstrate, it's not about you. It's about my power to save. So Gideon and his men go to the enemy camp, and God, it says, sets the Midianites against one another and gives Israel the victory. And in chapter 8, the rest of the people of Israel come to Gideon. They say, please be our king. And Gideon says, no, the Lord himself will be your king. Very good, true, and admirable words. But that's not really what happens, if you know the story in Judges 8 and 9. Gideon takes an offering from the people. He makes an idol for them to worship. And then he names his son Abimelech, which means, my father is king. So he says one thing, and then he does another. He's given this power, and he abuses it. So we need a king not only to save us from oppression without, but from oppression within, and from oppression and rebellion within our own hearts and minds. And this is what the coming king in Isaiah chapter 9 will do. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He has reunified them again. They're one nation, no longer north and south. And the people have joy. There is no longer oppression, as we see in verse 4. This is why they have joy. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The Lord will deliver his people. And then verse 5, the deliverance is complete. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All the war materials will be burned up. Reminds me of Isaiah chapter 2, which says, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But this is a complete removal of all these things of war. They're not used for anything else. They're burned up. Let me give you an illustration. When I was in high school, my parents had a fire pit in their backyard, and uh, we'd have a lot of fires in the summertime, and so one night we are going to have one. It was the last day of school, and somebody had the bright idea, hey, teachers, you might want to plug your ears at this. Hey, let's burn our school stuff. It's the end of the year. We don't need it anymore. Let's have a bonfire. And so we started this tradition that every year at the end of the school, we'd burn up all those things. Now, it didn't stop school from coming the next year, right? It was still going to be there. But that was our way of saying, we are done with this. But in an even greater way here, we see that every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. War will be no more. The king brings joyful liberation from oppression, and he does so to the very roots, getting rid of war, getting rid of injustice. And because he does this to the very roots, he can bring true peace. But what then? Does he just liberate us from oppression and says, okay, hey, figure it out. Go from there, right? But what about uprooting the evil and rebellion that's in our own hearts and minds? You see, third, the king brings everlasting dominion instead of uncertainty. How does this great light and liberating joy come? This passage says in verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. That doesn't make any sense to us, right? How can a a child do these things? How can a son do these things? To understand, again, we need to go back a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You see, in 2 Samuel, Israel's king is David, who is the best, who is the greatest of the kings that they have. He's called elsewhere in the Bible a man after God's own heart. And God makes him a promise. God, God makes a covenant with him and says this. It says this in 2 Samuel 7. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So David is not the one who will achieve this. If you know anything about David's life, he stole someone's wife, he committed adultery, he murdered somebody. He's not the king we need. And his son, his heir Solomon, is wise and has wisdom, but eventually follows after other gods. His heart is taken away. So who will do this? Who will be the son that fulfills this? Especially in Isaiah, with the hint of the coming invasion, how is the Lord going to fulfill his promise to his people? And Isaiah says, this is it. This child. In verse 7, it says the child will reign on the throne of David. This is the child of promise. So what will this child be like? Again, how could a child bring such change? Look again in verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
He will exercise power. He will have exclusive administration and dominion. And I love the parallel here, right? We, are, we have burdens on our shoulders that he breaks in verse 4, and then he shoulders the burden of government upon himself. And then we have the famous name, the famous names, the famous list of titles that you've probably heard if you've heard this passage before, these names that apply to him. Like chapter 7, he was called Emmanuel in Isaiah, God with us. He's now called four titles. The first is Wonderful Counselor. This word wonderful can also mean supernatural. See, this king will have all wisdom and knowledge to help guide his people in any situation. The Wonderful Counselor. He'll be mighty God. You heard that right. Mighty God. Now, many people look at this passage and they try to make it say something different. They try to make it say, oh, it's, it's God-like hero. Or maybe this is a title for God and not a title for the child. But no, the way it's written, this is a title for the child and his name is Mighty God. And multiple times throughout the Old Testament, God himself is referred to as Mighty God, including in the very next chapter of Isaiah. In Isaiah 10.21, he's called Mighty God. This is not a mere man. He's also Mighty God. And then he's called Everlasting Father. Now, this Father isn't referring to God the Father, first person of the Trinity. No, this is referring to a benevolent protector, a true king, a father of his people who will lead us and shepherd us. He's also called here the Prince of Peace. And peace here is not just an absence of war, though it's not less than that, but it's a complete and utter holistic flourishing of everything we were meant to be in this world. The Prince of Peace will come. And that's why it's not just light and darkness nor joyful liberation from oppression, but everlasting dominion and government instead of the uncertainty that we ourselves would bring. And so Isaiah continues to describe this kind of dominion in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The reign of this king is eternal. Young worshipers, how long will Jesus be king? Forever and ever. It is an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness ruled by the God of peace himself. What more could we possibly want? Disillusionment will be dismissed, despair will be dissolved, and desire will be delivered beyond all of our wildest expectations by this God, by this coming King. This is the prophecy in Isaiah 9 about the coming King. Well, what more could we want? We want this King to come. And the good news this morning is that this King has come. That is the good news of the Christmas season. This king has come, and his name is Jesus. In Matthew 4, it refers to verse 1 of Isaiah to talk about how Jesus came from the northern tribes and brought light. Jesus is of the line of David, born of a woman, born of Mary, and yet he's born of a virgin. He's God himself in human flesh. That way he is the child, and at the same time he is mighty God. He is light in darkness. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
He brings liberation from oppression. In Luke chapter 4, he reads from another passage of Isaiah that talks about good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and restoring sight to the blind. And he says, today those have been fulfilled in your hearing. He takes this upon himself. He knows that he is the one spoken of. He also brings everlasting dominion. He says of himself, before Abraham was, I am. And in Matthew 28, 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The New Testament continually calls him Lord, which in that time only Caesar was Lord. And they're saying, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is this king. But how did he establish this kingdom? Was there a revolt? Was there a big rebellion? Well, what happened? How does he uproot rebellion from our own hearts and minds? How does that work? He did so not with weapons of war, but by his death. You see, this king carried the burden of our own rebellion against himself, our evil, and took the punishment upon himself. And in so doing, satisfied the justice of God and died, but also the mercy of God so that we might live. And not only did he die, but he rose again from the dead, conquering the greatest enemy, the ultimate enemy of death for us. And this king is coming again. He's coming to consolidate and to affect his everlasting rule. And the king offers this true peace to all who believe in him, to all who submit to him. Jesus is the king that Isaiah 9 and the rest of the Old Testament point to and foretold about. The Westminster Shorter Catechism 25 says this, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus is this king who brings peace. Jesus brings light. Jesus brings joyful liberation. He brings everlasting dominion. And in so doing, to sum it all up, he brings peace. He is the Prince of Peace. And true peace can only be found in the true King. But you know, the King does not submit to us. We submit to the King. It is so easy for us to want to use power for ourselves, to want to be the one that brings light, to want to be the one who brings liberty, to want to be the one who brings government and everlasting dominion, but we can't do it. We are incapable in and of ourselves, and we ought to submit ourselves to this king. You see, the Christian life is living as his subjects, pursuing peace in a broken world in his way. We submit to the king. And because we submit to the king, this is why we follow what the Bible says about how to live. In the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, one of the verses says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, love divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This is why we seek to honor the king who has brought us peace. We seek to honor the king with how we treat one another. The words we use are the words we don't use. How we use the power we've been given. How we speak to one another. How we work how we think of relationships, how we think of sex and sexuality, what we do on Sundays and what we do the rest of the week, how we spend our money or what we spend it on or how we give it away to one another, how we spend time in his word or how we spend time alone, all these things we do to honor the king. 
And this week, I encourage you, ask yourselves the question, am I honoring the king? Or better yet, how can I honor the king this week and what he has given me to do? Also, we give honor to the king as we honor those that he's given temporary authority to, to government officials, to bosses at work, to people in, the, in family, family leadership, to people in the church. We honor the people that he's put in authority. We seek always and everywhere to honor our great king. Growing up, my father, when he would tuck me in, would, would do this thing called the Code of Knighthood. And this code goes all the way back to the epic, epic poem, The Idols of a King, by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And it's simply this. Live pure, speak truth, right wrong, and follow the king. Live pure, speak truth, right wrong, and follow the king. You see, we follow this king because he has brought us from death to life, and only he brings peace. My wife and I this week just finished reading through The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. And as he wrote, he didn't put any analogies in there on purpose, but all reflections, I think, as he would say, are reflections of the great story. And so in this, in this text, in the, in the Return of the King, the last book, there's a king named Aragorn. And in this book, he comes unlooked for to his people in the hour of their greatest need when they're surrounded by enemies. He doesn't come on a normal road. No, he actually comes uh, when everybody thinks he's not going to be able to make it. They think he won't survive. He instead takes the paths of the dead. And so he's able to free his people. And then after the battle in which he frees his people, he goes around the city healing everyone. And the line in the book is, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. Well, you see, Jesus came fulfilling Isaiah Chapter 9, he took the path of the dead for us, and his hands are the true hands of a healer and king who brings peace. And going back to the quote by John Locke, you know, he says that you know, power in the wrong hands disturbs mankind, ruins cities, depopulates countries, and disorders the peace of the world. Well, this king has done something different. This king has not disturbed mankind, but is the wonderful counselor bringing light to his people. He's not ruined cities, but he is the mighty God liberating his people and unifying them together. He's not depopulated countries, but he's the everlasting father who has multiplied the nation, who has ransomed the people for his own precious possession. And he has not disordered peace, but he is the prince of peace and brings that peace in everlasting dominion. Only Jesus brings true peace, and so we must submit to him, and we must honor him. Only Jesus brings true peace, and so we must submit to him and honor him. This is our only hope in this Advent season and in all other times, both now and forever. Amen. Holy Father, You have done this by your zeal. We are so thankful for your word to us, for light and darkness, for liberation from oppression, and for everlasting dominion in our uncertainty. Oh Lord, would you show us how to honor King Jesus? Would you show us how to more and more submit ourselves to his rule and his righteousness and his peace? Lord, would you help those of us here who have not submitted to submit for the first time? But also, would you help those of us here who have submitted to continue to work out what it means to honor you in all that we do and say. 
And Lord, show us your peace this Advent season. Thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your glory. Amen.